Welcome to the Duff Panel. To support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. So today I am excited to welcome back a very good friend of the panel, Nathan Tankis. Nathan is the publisher of the Notes on the Crises newsletter, where he writes about macroeconomics, money, and market governance. He is also the research director of the Modern Money Network. Nathan, welcome back to Death Panel. Great to be here. I'm so glad to have you here to talk about a topic that we've had you on a couple times to discuss, but... We're going to have a sort of whole new conversation about inflation today. And right now, inflation is billed as a top line concern going into the midterm election cycle. And people may have noticed a steady drip of coverage or polling over the last six months talking about how Americans now care more about inflation than COVID policy. This has been a political narrative that has been growing. And at the same time, it's also something that I think many people are feeling in their day to day lives in terms of price increases or their rent going up. You know, money just isn't stretching as far as it used to. The Labor Department reported on Wednesday, August 10th, that consumer prices in July were on average 8.5 percent higher than in 2021. And all of the coverage you see on this mentions these sort of, quote unquote, aggressive actions that are being taken by the federal government. On Sunday, the 7th of July, the U.S. Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act, or the IRA. Later this week, it's expected to pass the House, and there have been a lot of victory laps about the IRA. Uh, Lots of exuberant press releases and coverage of this in the media, like Paul Krugman's piece about it in the New York Times op-ed pages called did Democrats just save civilization? (laughs) Yikes. Love that. Yeah. So, you know, this is mostly sort of being framed as a piece of climate policy. And despite all the celebrating, there's a lot of climate and economic justice people who are not as happy um, and have very mixed feelings about the concessions to the fossil fuel industry in this bill. And this bill is also being framed as a historic health finance reform, which is exhausting. Um, And again, people like us who work on health and disability justice have very mixed feelings about this. But all in, uh, bottom line is the IRA is being sold as this blockbuster success story because I think it's seen as tackling these three, you know, really key political issues, which are climate, healthcare, but most importantly, inflation, you know, which they put in the name. Um, but I think there's often a huge disconnect between the way the economy is talked about and the way that it actually works, you know, how these decisions on what inflation solutions we're going to pursue will actually materially manifest like in people's lives. And what I really want us to be talking about today is sort of how to understand inflation politically, what inflation is, the factors that cause it, and most importantly, the problems with some of the traditional mechanisms for controlling it. And this is a topic, Nathan, that you've written on extensively. And while I think most people sort of implicitly understand what inflation means, you know, stuff gets more expensive and that's bad. You know, inflation is often talked about as a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. But I want to start us at square one here. Can you talk about what inflation is conceptually and functionally. And then after that, we can sort of get into how it's used politically. Sure. I mean, to me, I think what the key thing to start with, like the idea of inflation is that there is kind of this theory concept. There's this concept associated with orthodox economics. And then there is a statistical apparatus in a, in a media apparatus that produces it as something that is quote-unquote actual um, mm-hmm. and actually existing in people's lives. So, you know, and, and I think, you know, it's important to conceptually separate those two. You know, in the, in, the, in the theory conception, there is this price level and all these prices are related to each other in the sense that what a price set for one product relative to another matters because these all-knowing, all-calculating consumers don't have kind of discrete, qualitatively different needs that can only be satisfied by certain types of useful objects. They instead have a kind of generic concept of need, but let's say utility, that any good can fulfill. It's just a question of how much that good can fulfill it for them. So, you know, in in this kind of framework, the price of Starbucks goes up and 
you go out and buy some pants because now pants are relatively cheaper. You know, this is in, this is <laughs> right. in the or- Orthodox economics framework, like what uh, relative prices mean. I often treat coffee and pants as equivalent. So, you know, I, w- I yeah. can substitute. Well, <laughs> I, I, th- I think I think this is important, uh, though, because one, for instance, one thing that's happening literally right now is, you know, Wednesday morning, you know, big inflation report came out or whatever. And the the trend line, what everyone's kind of beating the drum about is, uh, look, it seems like there's a downturn in inflation now. But when you look at the components of that, that's, you know, there's a downturn in prices of certain things. But then, for instance, rent and food, two mm-hmm. of the most important components of what is of, I mean, living, but also two of the most important components, I think, of what is driving inflation right now are still going up. Like rent and food are still something that has like experienced price increases. Yes. And yeah, regardless of what someone will tell you, you can't substitute one thing for a place to live or (laughs) something to eat. You can substitute chicken for beef, but you can't substitute the concept of food for something else cheaper gas for existence yeah for so yeah <laughs> this is and, and and this is this is the core issue from my point of view is in this orthodox framework you've got these all-encompassing consumers who are constantly comparing all prices and as a result all prices are kind of related there is overall demand and you impact overall prices based on uh, that overall demand, you know, that demand you know, is less, you get less, quote unquote, inflation, you, know, you get a, a, a price level that's growing less fast or uh, going negative. It's a very mechanical one to one ratio. You know, obviously, historically, it was the money supply. And this is kind of just almost the most basic monetarism or the Milton Friedman or earlier figures like Irving Fisher or before that 19th century figures of just like, well, you print too much money, that caused inflation. It's all nice, you know, pretty bow that you can put everything together. And there's something intellectually attractive across the board. You know, it's not like only right-wingers talk this way sometimes. Mm -hmm. And, but that's the critical concept is in the like theory framework of it. There is this price level where all these prices are, are related to each other. And there's, you know, there might be some microeconomic features which determine what the price of one thing relative to another is, but the price level where all these prices are, quote unquote, are all together are determined purely by these aggregate factor, which used to be money supply. And now is this kind of concept of demand. Yeah, it always occurred to me that, you know, I remember being in college and being delivered, you know, on a silver uh, platter, the, you know, Milton Friedman kind of moral tale of inflation. And, you know, it sort of went like this, like uh, (laughs) democracy has gotten too democratic, like, you know, uh, for every action, there's some sort of reaction. and, And, you know, this is what you get. And so the only uh, you know, appropriate response is, you know, the short, sharp shock, uh, more austerity, right? Just just the sort of punitive moral tale. It's like, well, you see what happens when you overindulge. This is what you get. And, you know, I think what you're kind of illustrating is that now, given that that sort of monetarist fable has has fallen in regard, they needed some other sin, you know, to to. Uh, justify the 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 punishment to justify the the cat and nine tails um, that the Fed is sort of unleashing. Um, but I think what you know your analysis kind of illustrates is like that too is like not really a great explanation of what's happening in the economy. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, so there's there's a few different angles that I can uh, pursue with that. You know, so there's this theory concept, and then there is the actual concept and or the the how inflation is turned into a meaningful concept in people's everyday lives. And it's through invoking, you know, the kind of everyday prices that people care about. But the most important part is that we have a statistical agency, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, that produces the numbers and provides it served up in certain ways that lets there to be a monthly number. So, you know, as you said, uh, we're recording this on 
a CPI day. So, you know, and, mm-hmm. and the CPI print is kind of quote unquote good. Um, yeah, they say and, the, the annual inflation rate was slightly lower than the 9.1% figure recorded in June. So this 8.5 is a good thing in the way they're yes. framing it. Um, and that what's more important to me than any actual like number that's recorded, because what does one of those numbers really mean to mm-hmm. anyone individually Literally is, <laughs> is, is, is the is the fact that it's there. It's, it's the fact that it is like something that is continuously coming that defines uh, how people view their economic situation and the wider economic situation all along with unemployment. Um, so, you know, there's unemployment and then there's inflation and they're defined by like the monthly reports where we get that, you know, we don't have a monthly housing report that tells us how many evictions happened that month or how many people were forced to move because uh, they couldn't make rent. We don't have a monthly report of how many people are not able to pay their electricity bill we don't have a monthly homelessness rate we we there's all sorts of things that you know that you care about you know okay well i mean there was a while where we had a daily death figure and we we technically still do but uh right daily death figure from covid is uh has has, has been put aside politically right and so there's there's all these other um criteria in which you could define you know obviously some of the things i just mentioned there might be like real data gathering issues in 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 producing a, a coherent monthly estimate, you know, most especially a homelessness rate. But the point being that there are all sorts of economic indicators that they could notionally produce a monthly estimate of how much we're emitting carbon and reported, you know, we could have emissions day of how many CO, how much CO2 was being produced that month. But we don't have that superstructure stuff we have certain other kinds of bits and pieces monthly release data but like in terms of what's been socially constructed as what's important it's the cpi data maybe there's a second index called the pce maybe some of that and there is the unemployment data and these are like the important things these are the things along with the stock market that are going to get reported at the news that are going to define and you know you hear a a good or bad number, quote unquote, and that's going to affect your perceptions. And there's all sorts of experiences that you can feed into that. You know, one one example I really would make to really make this country is a little over a decade ago, around like say 2010, Mm -hmm. um, you know, early 2008, 2011, you know, basically up to the Arab Spring, uh, there was a huge run up in commodity prices, food prices worldwide. And, you know, a lot of people, say that the uprisings that happened uh, in the Arab Spring were in part related to those issues. And food prices did go up a lot, but we didn't have a crisis about inflation in 2010, 2011. Why didn't we have a crisis of inflation? Well, food prices may have gone up a lot, but CPI was low, was measured low. So there's no conversation about inflation. And, And this is kind of what's interesting about what's going on now is a lot of ordinary people get on board with the inflation conversation. Go, yeah, prices are high, um, and they're focusing on you know the obvious prices, food or energy or rent, which they're mostly focusing on because the rent is very high, not necessarily mm-hmm. because it's increasing. Although obviously there are certain places where it's increasing and that's eye popping. Certainly, um, the rent is too damn high. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah, yes. certainly the rent is too damn high. I mean, that's the Undeniably. whole thing about inflation is that it's a rate of change it's not you know for example you know the idea that rents are skyrocketing is intuitive if you're living in the northeast but the average that rent has gone up in the northeast up until now i mean that's going to change too on overall basis that index has gone up like two and a half three percent like most of the big jumps in the index have been in other places have been in uh the south some in the Midwest, uh, some in the West, and they've been, you know, places where they've seen a lot of in-migration because of the pandemic and, you know, disruption to the ways of living and the migration patterns that were happening before the pandemic. And, you know, even even in places, which a lot of these places are, places where you can build, 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 
you, you're still at the hands of the, of the existing landlords and uh, landlords have a lot of scope to essentially gouge you. Uh, and that's, you know, for those places, you know, rates is going up a lot. But if you're living in the Northeast, it's not like any anyone, any of us knows goes, wow, rent has really been, you know, rental inflation has been real low. Uh, <laughs> no, none of our, none of, no, no one we know is saying anything like that. And part of that is because the rent was already very, very high. And part of it is if you were, you know, in a position to look for an apartment in, say, June 2022, it would have been an incredible pain in the ass. And you would have heard some high popping numbers. And, you know, but a large part of that is just the rent is already very high. Uh, and if you ask people about inflation or rent inflation in the Northeast, they would have some stories about you know, individual landlords that quoted this crazy high insane numbers, but also they generally would just, they, they would just take it as, yeah, the rent's very high. Wouldn't take it, oh, the rent of rate of change of rent has uh, been, you know, especially significant recently. Like, so it's important to keep that in mind that like a lot of people react to like the cost of living is high when people talk about inflation, mm -hmm. but that's not really what, economists and what this larger conversation is is getting at and it's kind of um it's kind of a fool's errand to see like your living costs be as being taken seriously in this conversation of inflation especially when you know the solution that they're going to come up with is killing your income right uh, and so and that, and that and that's what it is and so and you know in part of that you know i emphasize the thing about food and to lesser extent rent is that you know Rent was one of those things that was increasing in 2010, 2011. And what is one of the main components that on average was increasing uh, when overall, like if you extract rent out up until 2019, there's basically no movement in quote unquote inflation in the CPI index at all, except for rent. Like rents were the one thing increasing uh, before, but they weren't a quote unquote crisis because inflation was quote-unquote low, CP, CPI was 2% or less. And so, you know, when you think about inflation, you're thinking about food prices going up, or you're thinking about your gas bill, especially gas, which is, has such a strong place in the American imagination of prices, and, you know, maybe a lesser extent rent. But when they're talking about there being a crisis, what they're talking about is that there's these other components that have gone up that are beyond the basic necessities. And it's that combined with, you know, the food and energy that is leading to, you know, CPI being 9.1% the year before, the, the, the month before, only 8.5 now. Like the crisis part of that in, in that mindset is the fact that there's these other components. If it was just food and energy, there would kind of be, quote unquote, a looking through. Um, yeah. So this conversation isn't necessarily about your, it's not really about your like day-to-day -day living. Mm -hmm. It's about these larger things that, that that can be pointed to. Just to make sure that I understand correctly, Nathan, I guess, um, I wonder if we could talk about, so, you know, if, if now we can kind of acknowledge there are complexities to what is identified as inflation, you know, what are the things that orthodox economists, as it were, would take away as sort of okay well this abstract inflation number right this this uh this this uh cpi figure is going up therefore these are the levers that we should pull does that make sense like what what, what are the tools? what are the traditional <laughs> tools to control inflation and what do those actually sort of do on the level of the on the level of actually affecting sort of the actual needs that you're identifying as you know what what these are supposedly an appeal to right like what does this actually do to people who are you know, mostly worried about inflation to the extent that they see discussion of inflation as discussion of my rent is too damn high. Yeah. So the key to this to understand is that because of when I was talking about a little way back that, you know, there's this conception that prices rather than being thousands and thousands of prices, which are only loosely related to each other, you know, you know, uh, your rent is set differently than a price of apples, which is set differently than the price of a new Hyundai, that instead, if you see it as just this mass of prices that are all together, 
then the only way to manage this kind of mass, this price level, is to affect a component, affect something that affects all of them. Mm-hmm. And in the Orthodox framework, the consistent thing that affects all prices that really matters is overall demand. It's overall conditions of you know how mu- of how much money is being put out there to buy uh, goods goods and services. And that's ultimately, you know, how how much is out there to buy is based on income. It's how much income that ordinary households have to purchase things. At the most basic level, what we're talking about is there's income, there's your money income, and there are prices and they're the things you buy. And the intuition that mainstream economists are working with is that, you know, you say rent is too damn high. Well, a console response, uh, income is too damn high. That there's a overall dollar money income in the economy is growing too fast, you know, and which means demand is growing too fast. And boy, that sounds nice, you know, growing money income. It sounds like that would be really convenient in all sorts of ways if my money income were growing. But, you know, that benefits you at the individual level. But uh, you... You know, luckily you have economists here to uh, <laughs> to hold your hand for keep it. an eye out on all the unintended consequences. Um, you know, you think you want your income to grow up, but what if everyone's income went up? Well, then you wouldn't be a better off at all. Too um, much of a good thing, right? <laughs> too much of a good thing, and you know, a sugar high. Um, uh, it's all these <laughs> so fucked up uh, how the language of like gluttony is reproduced when it comes to like just describing yeah. like you know people maybe having a little bit more of what they need to survive well it also just strikes yeah. me as ironic because if so for example if I understand what you're saying correctly too if one of the things if they're saying that okay demand is the central thing that is how to understand inflation right there's too much demand all of a sudden and then so you know, people having more material resources, for instance, can then, you know, create the ability for demand to turn into what they're actually talking about when they say demand, because they don't say demand doesn't mean need. Obviously, demand means like need plus ability to pay for the thing that is needed under capitalism. Right. And so what's what's then funny, too, is especially, you know, uh, not to derail this too much, but thinking about how especially on the right wing, but also, of course, in a lot of mainstream Democrats or whatever, say that inflation is in part that, that this this round of inflation or whatever is in part a side effect of the you know pandemic stimulus payments or all the things that we did for the pandemic, which is the reason I say it's ironic is because as we've talked about before, so many of the things that we actually did for the pandemic in terms of actual like spending outlay were not public health measures. They were about keeping quote unquote demand going in the economy. Right. Yeah, um, exactly. And, you know, that's that point, you know, well, well, you'll get on the sugar high, but like what's also fundamental is that's ultimately the only possible source of inflation. So, you know, and as I said before, it's originally about money supply, oh, you're printing too much money, that argument kind of blew up in the 80s. And now it's just this sort of general concept of demand. And that means you use overall overall fiscal policy, maybe, you know, in terms of cutting back spending, raising taxes or so on. But more typically, because the Federal Reserve has been given the job to manage this, has been monetary policy, which basically in the, our current institutional setup, uh, the Federal Reserve increases interest rates, and the idea is, you know, that makes it more expensive for businesses to borrow, for households to borrow, and ergo, people are going to spend less because their credit is more expensive, and that will slow down income growth. Uh, slowing down income growth will clamp down on demand, and most importantly, in a, in a lot of cases, it's also this is going to keep wage growth from exploding because in the in the core theoretical framework for a number of decades, the idea was, well, you know, hey, demand increases some, prices go up. That was unfortunate. We should have done that. Glad we didn't do that again, but not a huge deal because, hey, you know, we'll just move on to the next period. We won't stupidly print more money and we won't stupidly spend a bunch more money 
and and uh, inflation will go away. But there is a factor that will make this uh, a continuous process that will make prices go up and up and up. And that's, oh, oops, we spent more money. We lowered interest rates too much. And the unemployment rate is too low. Right. The unemployment rate is too low. Uh, wage growth is going up. Hey, what did we say about that income? That income is is going up too fast, that dollar income. And it's, but it's not really helping you because prices are just going up. Um, and, well, we need to get a higher unemployment rate to, to manage that. Right. Um, and, and that's the core framework. And there, there was a whole conversation and a whole period of time where that framework was getting criticized from a lot of angles, including, you know, in the mainstream, not like, oh, radical leftists, we're criticizing it. In the mainstream, we're getting criticized. That. And in the mainstream, we're getting criticized that on import racial equity grounds. And more and more Federal Reserve officials were acknowledging the critique and taking it on. And they had this whole framework review where they supposedly changed the framework, you know, and, and the big change was, you know, ultimately that they weren't going to raise interest rates in anticipation of inflation. They were going to let inflation happen for, for a while and then only raise interest rates. And so that is ultimately what we've seen. You know, there's a there's a universe where this framework review doesn't happen. And the Federal Reserve starts raising interest rates last year um, to tamp down on on inflation. So I do really think that there is an actual substantive intellectual difference that has changed that, you know, ultimately isn't the biggest deal in the world. But it it actually is, from my point of view, significant that they didn't start raising interest rates in, say, June 2021. They started in, you know, May or June 2022 and only after an incredible media drumbeat about uh, about the topic. Well, right. And there's this real question about what tools uh, government actually uh, has or needs to develop, um, that being the crucial distinction, to uh, deal with the price increases and with uh, kind of the Fed's like reaction to any any potential signs of of, of wage growth. And I, I guess one question I have is sort of, you know, it seems to be one thing that you're saying is like there's there are pressure points to some extent within the logic of the Fed's current statutory commands and set of tools. But there's also a question about, you know, what else, what other sorts of things should be getting attention as 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 tools the government needs to develop? Yeah. So, I mean, one obvious thing, but, I, you know, I want to keep it with talking about this orthodox economics frame. You know, if you're you know, listening to this and kind of taking a kind of intuitive, you know, for lack of a better word, person on the street perspective, um, you might think, well, okay, prices are increasing. Why don't you go regulate those prices? Um, I think it's a very commonsensical approach. And the orthodox economic response to that, that kind of takes that kind of, using any sort of non-financial regulatory tool about prices is, well, that those tools are microeconomics. All you know, all non-financial regulation is microeconomics, um, and focused on microeconomic issues that are particular markets. And then there's macroeconomics, and macroeconomics is about demand. So yeah, you know, prescription drug prices are too high. Yeah, maybe you should regulate those. But if you're worried that the price level is too high or the price level is growing too fast. You know, regulating prices are, isn't going to do anything. You gotta, you gotta deal with demand. So if you know, there's a way in which there's the closed loop logic of the price levels determined by demand. So you must regulate demand. Always goes down the road of limiting income in the economy and ultimately disproportionately impacting people on the low end of the labor market. So, so basically, the the default position under an orthodox economic perspective is to default to austerity measures, right? Yeah. Yeah. The austerity is the one neat trick every single time. (laughs) Um, Now this has been kind of complicated in the pandemic because it's been so overwhelmingly obvious that there have been a series of supply chain disruptions that are related to the pandemic 
that are obviously related to the pandemic. And it's kind of hard. It's been hard to sustain that, you know, and, and you've seen this in various different conversations, you know, a sudden focus one, one month on how rickety the ports are and what's going on with ports. You know, it's a point a few months ago where a focus was on, you know, a shutdown in China, a shutdown in Shanghai, uh, disrupting exports from China. And, you know, there's all sorts of things that have been, you know, very clearly pandemic related. And even if people are, you know, because the pandemic is over, of course, um, <laughs> have 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 are, are, are less likely to emphasize that these disruptions are indeed pandemic disruptions. That initial conversation of pandemic-related supply chain disruption has gotten a conversation going about kind of intervention. You know, what can the Maritime Commission do to ease, you know, capacity constraints at the ports and like all sorts of things like that? Have they clearly put non-financial regulation on the table as something that can contribute and help in our situation and put it into mainstream discourse? And you know, indeed. The idea of this mansion bill being the Inflation Reduction Act is part of that. I mean, that is, Mm -hmm. you know, for all the problems, and I'm sure we'll get into that more later, that is a a sea change of intellectual thought, that idea that you can use fiscal policy to lower overall inflation by targeting bottlenecks and relieving them in, in certain sectors. Um, that, is, that is a total sea change in terms of mainstream policy scene, uh, thinking. But yeah, I mean, so, and so, but that's the key thing, you know, to get back to the core point is the idea that, well, non-financial regulation is microeconomics and microeconomics isn't macroeconomics and the price level is macroeconomics. So the only tool is demand. You know, if if you, you know, use a price regulation to lower prices in some other markets, well, people would have to spend less in that market. They'll have essentially have more income, more real income, and they'll go spend that money that they would have spent on on this product in some other market. You know, again, that that relative price thing. You know, my prescription drug prices came in lower than I expected them to uh, because of some new regulations, I'm going to go, you know, splurge elsewhere or, you know, insulin price was capped, which of course it hasn't actually been capped because that didn't make it the bill. And that was only insurance. Um, yeah, just covered. That was not, yeah, that was just co-pays. That was not actual uh, insulin prices, but you can imagine, you can almost imagine a world where we actually capped actual insulin prices and, Rather than going, wow, I've not, I don't have to bankrupt myself to get the basic substance I need to live. They're instead going to go, wow, you know, time to go out there and buy a whole bunch of other stuff. So that's the basic, and that, and that, unfortunately, how you know, he's he thought that uh, insulin uh, prices being capped at thirty five dollars was going to benefit to him, but really, it just uh, led to overall inflation. So, you know, who can say what's good or bad? <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I keep thinking of is, you know, we have these very singular solutions to inflation. Basically, as you're saying, one of the principles of how we run the economy is that we assume some level of unemployment is basically absolutely necessary in order to keep things from spiraling out of control. Would that would you say that's correct? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we've, yeah. Got, we've got one tool and we hammer and we hammer that tool and some kind of other tools have kind of shown up recently on the policy seen but they have it hasn't led to say a systematic reorganization of government you know right if, if you took this seriously enough and wanted to kind of encode it in administrative agencies the fed would be relieved of having solely having a price stability mandate right well i think as long as we sort of keep this imaginary intact, right? Where where price stability is essentially, we understand it as being mediated through unemployment, right? I, I, I don't think that that's going to be um, any kind of system that we can work with to build something that supports people no matter how much they work. I, I think back, you mentioned, um, Green, you mentioned Greenspan and the Clinton administration. Um, and I think back to some of the things, for example, that they tried um, towards, for, for example, trying to keep 
inflation low using these frameworks of full employment and trying to kick people off of welfare in order to create this kind of new tier of lower income uh, workforce to keep the kind of overall distribution of wages more level. And ultimately, that was something that backfired. But for example, um, you know, it was framed this way. Labor Secretary Alexis Herman uh, told a joint meeting of disability organizations that their big plan was, uh, quote, the last big group of people in this country who could keep the economy going strong with low inflation are Americans with disabilities who are not in the workforce. And President Clinton then said um, on his sort of poverty tour where he was talking about his big macroeconomic planning, um, he said, quote, there are a couple of options for ways to keep America's economy growing without inflation. You bring more people from welfare or from the ranks of the disabled into the workforce. And obviously, sort of this this sort of comment that Clinton was making at the time and his labor secretary were, were making, they were essentially proposing this as a way to stave off um, raising interest rates and stave off the Fed raising interest rates. But as you're pointing out, you know, to actually do something different to tackle this, right, we would need to actually, I think, approach pricing in a completely different way. And I think when we look back at these sort of, quote unquote, alternative options to managing inflation, like this kind of like ridiculous sort of kick people off of welfare disability proposal that I was just uh, laying out that the Clinton administration pursued in the 90s, that never decouples the understanding of prices having to do with this kind of idea of unemployment being necessary for the economy. And I think as you're pointing out, it's really important to, you know, for whatever framework we're pushing for to always keep in mind how I guess, essentially sort of constricting this uh, correlation is. I mean, can we talk about some of the the rhetorical frameworks that uh, are stood up in order to, I guess, argue that price controls don't work or that price controls, um, you know, are not effective ways of mitigating inflation? Because I think as, as we've been talking about, you know, um, and as you mentioned with the insulin cap framework that is actually a copay cap, you know, this is the kind of thing where you can say, oh, in the Inflation Reduction Act, we are lowering drug prices to fight inflation. But ultimately, what we're doing is we're creating subsidies and a limited bargaining agreement for Medicare. We're not putting price caps on anything. But I have a feeling that uh, when these quote unquote price caps in the IRA on, on drug prices inevitably fail because they are ultimately just sort of tweaks and subsidies. Well, they're not price caps. They're right. They can negotiate. They can buy what twenty twenty six negotiate prices on ten drugs. Right, yeah. but I mean it's being sold for, as this for Medicare big, only. Right, Medicare only. Right, yeah. but I mean as I'm saying, this is being sold as some like foundational uh, restructuring of the way that drugs cost <laughs> in this country, which it is not in any like you could not even. Like, I cannot even imagine how much I would have to exaggerate to understand how that it, would be true. It fails even in light of the 2019 version of the same idea Fair. that we yeah. had at that point made fun of, which was we would negotiate 250 drugs right. a year. And that even wasn't, you know, sort of enough, like the way that they were going to do that wasn't even enough. And now again, it's, you know, 10 drugs um, going up to... Uh, generously going up to 20 full drugs that they will negotiate prices on by uh what is it 2029 like yeah, give me a fucking break up. yeah, yeah. I, it, the, but this is kind of like, i guess nathan what you're talking about earlier when you said you know there is like what re- inflation is and then sort of how it's rhetorically used as a cudgel politically and, and in media framings right and so this kind of idea right that the ira is stepping in to rescue our bloated drug prices by instituting some sort of drug pricing control which is often the word that's used, right? Um, you know, that's so absolutely far from the truth. And I wonder if you could sort of pick apart for a second, like the way that the IRA is sort of being framed as this big health finance intervention. Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, to be honest, I've been focusing on less on that than than the climate stuff. Um, I think, you know, one thing I would say is notionally, in broad terms, abstracting from the IRA, regulating prescription drugs is certainly one way of contributing to lowering inflation. Um, and one of the reasons why I, th- why I think that, in contrast to some kind of more orthodox frameworks, is I don't think everything is all about demand all the time. And I don't think there's some adjustment process where you keep prescription drug prices from rising or even you 
uh, decrease them. So you you know put depletion of drugs into like, gas deflation. That like there's some automatic process by which demand will increase for other products, and you'll have price increases that are exactly equal to the price decreases in prescription drugs. Um, so on the like broad abstract level, I don't. I I think it's overall like a good it would it, a good rhetorical thing to tie lowering inflation to lowering or controlling prescription drug prices. Uh, the problem is, as you say, the bill does nothing of the kind. That the the limit the the limiting or regulation of prescription drugs is so limited in such in such a you know small corner and not even happening for years that it's not going to have much to do with anything with the prescription drug prices, which are in turn you know they matter, but they're also a small portion of 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 consumer price index. I mean, how they're a small component of healthcare costs imposed on individuals in yeah. the U.S. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Absolutely. Healthcare prices are are significant, but prescription drugs are a small percentage of the small of overall healthcare prices. Right. Absolutely. I mean, the f- opening line of the the Paul Krugman piece that I mentioned at the top, I think bears mentioning um, this piece is, a- again, called Did Democrats Just Save Civilization? And this came out August 8th in New York Times opinion column. He said they really did it. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is mainly a climate change bill with a side helping of health reform. And I think that that's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of the way that this is being framed right now. Right. Is this OK? So we have this like sort of situation, right, when we've got the pandemic and that's making things difficult. And we've got the supply chain and we've got the framework about how regular Americans are suffering. And we've got this kind of moment, right, where, as you're saying, uh, Nathan, the idea of like Biden's chances in the fall and the the chances of the Democratic Party is really tied to the idea of them sort of being successful in tackling inflation. And so much of that, I think, gestures, as you're saying, towards things that are very real problems like health finance and like, you know, the climate catastrophe that we're in the middle of. But, you know, just in the same way that the health finance portion of the IRA really falls short at addressing some of the real problems where inflation happens in healthcare and where that's actually contributing. You know, for example, I think the cost of living uh, cap on Medicare recipients who uh, basically saying, okay, you don't have to pay more than $2,000 out of pocket for your prescription costs is another good example. This sort of stacks on top of an existing program that already covers prescription co-pays for low-income people on SSDI and Medicare. So this is sort of a program on top of a program to deal with the fact that really the thing that's affecting people on Medicare and SSDI is the cost of housing being too high to afford when the monthly payments that you're getting from the Social Security Administration are so low and increase so infrequently over the years. And then, of course, if you're on Medicare and Medicaid together, you have an income cap, right? But but this is framed as, okay, well, we're going to fix problems for seniors, you know, who don't have enough money by capping their prescription costs in this very limited way. And I think, you know, for the climate change portion of the bill, which, as Krugman says, is the sort of main portion, this is a similar phenomenon that we're seeing where it's really, it's being portrayed as this really watershed intervention, Um that redefines the way that we're like sort of connecting inflation and climate change together. But is that exactly really the case of what's going on? You know, I'm still digesting this. And so I I haven't fully set what I think about the bill, but in broad terms, in relation to what I wrote about two weeks ago with Employ America and their proposal for stabilizing oil prices, oil and gas prices, um, I think we are in a circumstance that the Inflation Reduction Act is also part where there is a pivot on climate change happening policy-wise to emphasize and focus on growing the renewable energy industry and to a lesser extent, but a significant extent, also growing the carbon capture industry and a pivot away from actually raining in fossil fuels. And I think in part, you know, in large part, that of course is just, that's what they feel they need to agree to, to get Manchin to agree to pass anything. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But I also think that in the context of ongoing or potential actual bottlenecks in oil and gas industry, 
in the context of Ukraine, there is a current pivot to actually let's over the next 10 to 15 years, let them grow together. And then, you know, renewable energy will start, quote unquote, displacing fossil fuels. And that's how the the transition is going to go. And I, I, I think yeah, for obvious reasons, I think that's an incredibly dangerous approach to policy. And I also think it is it is wrongheaded in the sense that there are a lot of things we can do right now to deal with energy issues now that don't involve a long-term sustained increase in growth of the fossil fuel industry. And to the, to the extent, and even in the circumstance where we actually tried other things, which because, you know, remember, we, we haven't tried anything else in mm-hmm. terms of managing our energy issues, that in, in that circumstance, then that needs to be happening under a public basis and come in exchange for a huge decrease in, say, you know, the, the financial or political power or whatever else. Um, or, you know, just, you know, huge restrictions on the, the environmental standards of this drilling happens to make that happen. And instead, we are on, I, I think we are on a policy trajectory where the idea of euthanizing or putting on a trajectory of, of, of shrinking the fossil fuel industry is becoming out of vogue, to at least to a certain extent, in exchange for, uh, you know, as the saying goes, being a progressive who gets things done. <laughs> well, right. I mean, because the ultimate effect of the, you know, subsidizing this industry and subsidizing its expansion is not just like, okay, you have some economic effect on them, but you also end up increasing their political uh, level of political capacity and power to fight a- any sort of more stringent uh, or more capacious climate change legislation that comes down the pike in the next few years, which is, I think, something that's sort of been left out of uh, the analysis. Well, I think part of what, you know, this, it, it just really feels like is the priority from the Biden administration, right? It's not doing anything to actually solve cost of living crises. It's it's to really solve the political problem that they have in the media narrative of inflation more than anything else. And I think in a lot of ways, as you're saying, it's like the whole point of sort of passing this legislation is not necessarily what's in it, but it, it's the point of passing itself, right? And that's been very much part of the framing of why this is a success. It's it's the ideas that Biden's proved everyone wrong, that he wasn't going to get anything done. Look, he got something done. Does it matter what's in it? Not really, because it's done as long as it's done. And, it you know, it's a very sort of cynical approach to policymaking that pretends like people's material experiences of their lives like really doesn't matter relative to what the media cycle is saying. Yeah. So, I mean, this is sort of the the annoying conversation about the IRA that is probably going to grace not only the pages of major publications, which is why Paul Krugman has to write this sort of DC comics version of it, but also will grace the, uh, the airwaves, so to speak, is just like, well, the IRA isn't really going to reduce inflation or will. But I think the the bigger takeaway from your writing about this and about the broader sort of problem is that at the very least, the thing to be optimistic about is that at the very least, people can now see that the Fed is not the and does not necessarily possess the tools to deal with issues of uh, rising prices. And then, in fact, you do have to resort to things like uh, fiscal policy and regulation uh, to deal with it. But obviously the IRA is like, you know, it's a, I, you referred to it as the mansion bill. I think that's a good way of referring to it. Um, the, you know, so I wonder if you think about like, what are the things that people should be talking about that would have a meaningful impact uh, on inflation? Um, I think one core thing that the Biden administration could do is look for, look through every nook and cranny for, prices that it can uh, impact using its existing regulatory tools. And that sounds kind of obvious, but it, you know, there's a huge scope for those things and it really matters. You know, just to give a very tiny example from the pre-pandemic era, um, it was kind of a surprise uh, that the Obama administration didn't approve uh, the T-Mobile merger, which I think is now going through. But when that sudden lack of approval went through, it had for a while had a big impact on the cell phone industry and led to lower prices and certainly not increasing prices 
in cell phone markets and you know cell phone plan markets, and that actually had like a significant enough impact on CPI that it turned up in the reports that Federal Reserve staff were giving Federal Reserve officials. Um, and I think uh, Yellen even name checked it a few times as like a few times as like a transitory thing that that was keeping CPI down. And I think that that you know that's a tiny example that had a relatively minor impact, but still enough of an impact that that it's noticeable. And I think that there's all sorts of regulatory tools that they can use, you know, fair competition authorities and the ability to set fair competition rules um, from the Federal Trade Commission is a really underutilized tool that can definitely impact price setting in a lot of markets. I think the I think the federal government has a lot of tools that if it really, you know, got a whole bunch of staffers to spend all day exploring, could find tools to at least have an indirect impact on on rental markets and certainly on more you know on markets where there are government guaranteed mortgages behind landlords you know there's tools like that where they can you know they can also have all sorts of things that they can do to encourage uh rent regulation at a local level and and you know the bare, obviously at the bare bare minimum there's a bully pulpit support for rent regulation at a local level which of course the administration has never given any public credence to. But generally, yeah, there's a lot of prices that are already kind of in the regulatory orbit, which are significant, you know, and obviously, you know, the inflation, one area of inflation reduction act is going to be related to is utilities, investor owned utilities. And there's certainly regulatory tools to impact those prices, you know, and certainly uh, Federal Trade Commission um, has historically been almost completely missing in action on on regulating uh, healthcare as an industry, regulating hospitals, regulating medical service providers and, and medical parts manufacturers and all that. Um, but, you know, I, th- I, th- I think there are a tons of things that pursue and things to pursue in areas that are kind of more typically seen as quote unquote regulated prices or areas where the government has like in, uh, a, more, a more obvious and direct quote unquote impact on prices you know it's it's the kind of thing that, you know if you really adopt that lens and you systematically look throughout the economy i think you can find a lot even just with uh with presidential authority to start cracking down and of course you know if we're, if we're talking about popularism cracking down on corporate price setting even if those aren't actually directly the causes of the inflation we're experiencing is hugely politically popular. I mean, it's amazing how much the corporate profiteering narrative of inflation, which I don't necessarily think is accurate as an empirical matter, but it certainly is extremely popular politically. And, you know, the the Biden administration has danced with that rhetoric a little bit rhetorically, but it has not, say, systematically gone and seeking out whatever sort of price regulation powers it currently has to actually intervene in, in prices in price setting um, or reorganize how certain markets are governed. So it's uh, you know, if 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 we're supposed to purely be living in the hell world of what's politically possible and what's popular and all the crap that has been uh, fed to us over the last two, two and a half years, well, you know, by that logic, you know, the Biden administration should be pursuing price regulation in every nook and cranny because it's cert- it certainly is popular within the population. There's no way of of recutting the data we have, the information we have that makes cracking down on, on corporate price setting uh, an unpopular thing. So another thing that I, I really think is important to emphasize about, you know, searching every nook and cranny about to, re- to regulate prices like that matters because hey it'd be great to get those pri- those prices down but it also matters for keeping the federal reserve at bay because as much as this all this stuff inflation everything else is sold as this narrow technocratic process the headline number matters and you know if we use regulatory tools that doesn't uh, mean that you know demand conditions in the economy would be changed. And, you know, Federal Reserve officials aren't stupid. They'd be able to notice that it was these regulatory tools that were bringing down prices. So, you know, 
if you if you treated this as purely a technocratic process, you might ask, well, won't the Federal Reserve just raise interest rates anyway? They'll notice that you know these price uh, decreases or decelerations, whatever, are coming from regulation, and they'll just raise interest rates. And the answer is no. The answer is if you know inflation is decelerating, if it's consistently happening month after month after month. Uh, the Federal Reserve is not going to continue raising interest rates. It's not going to be pursuing austerity because the whole basis of doing that is inflation going up, is CPI going up. And they, they simply won't go down that road if inflation is decelerating, even if it's related to um, these price regulatory tools. Um, it, it really does kind of, you know, keep the hounds uh, at the door. And, you know, this is part of the kind of Point that this is a political process, that there's this political back and forth between these various sets of actors, what the monthly CPI number is, and the Federal Reserve, and it's managing this social process, and that you know that social process would be really disruptive if the uh, disrupted by the Federal Reserve saying, yeah, it looks like inflation's going down, but we're still going to raise interest rates, um, and I, I I think much more likely, and I think. The historical record, at least the last 20 years or so, shows that when factors keep prices going down, even if they're not related to overall demand, uh, the Fed doesn't respond. You know, one example I would even mention that you even see some dis- discussion among mainstream central bankers is what's called, you know, by orthodox economists, quote unquote, the China shock. Um, the idea that, you know, all this, the opening up of China the acceleration of offshoring with the opening up of China, joining the WTO in 2000, that you suddenly had, quote-unquote, goods prices, basically things that can be imported, continuously go down every year. And that's a big part of the reason why inflation was so low for so long. Notionally, you could be like, well, that has nothing to do with demand conditions because that's just this you know, structural change to the economy. They should have kept on raising interest rates, but that's not what they do. They say, oh, well, inflation's lower now. We're going to keep on riding out inflation being lower. And I think the exact same thing would happen with price regulation, which is why it's important for the Biden administration to use every tool at its disposal to manage and regulate prices. But all, all of that, of course, entails the idea that you are going to take political ownership and make it a political project uh, rather than continuing to treat the economy as if it's like the weather uh, or, you know, yeah. just like these these automatic processes that the technocrats come in and just sort of like, you know, tweak the dials and, mm-hmm. you know, they're only sort of managing around the edges. I think what you're talking about, which I think is a you know profoundly valuable political project is just saying, no, actually, uh, we have the ability to do something about this. It, and and it, it entails taking a certain amount of risk, but there is an actual possibility that you can create a different politics out of taking it, which I think is, you know, you know, if we're going to go anywhere that, that seems to be a necessary uh, part of the direction. Yeah. And and I also think that they've opened the door by calling this the inflation reduction act and emphasizing that they've opened the door to that. They've, they, they are starting to take political ownership of, of inflation and not just having it be a Fed thing, even if the Fed still has the sole mandate among administrative agencies. And so I also think that there's a little bit of a danger of them taking that on and taking ownership of it some, and then not following through with anything else, yeah. because then that's something that can be pinned on you. You said you were getting under control, you passed the Inflation Reduction Act, oh, it's still not under control. Now, maybe, you know, things kind of settle out, smooth out. But if it doesn't, you've started to take ownership of that. And so it, it's it's now even more in your political interest to actually try to use every tool available to you to hammer this because you've moved beyond the world where, oh, that's the Fed's job. Talk to the Fed. Go call the Fed. You know, I, I don't even know inflation. I don't know anything you're talking about. That's their their job. You know, don't don't look at us. So, but essentially, though, what they are taking ownership over with this framework is one that nudges sort of people towards this like punishing misery, uh, pretending that like consumer demand is really the problem when we refuse to regulate prices is what you're saying. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, dem- 
demand can be under in certain circumstances. And I do think that we have bottlenecks in particular markets that also need to be managed. So I don't think it's all things that can, you know, that, that the processes that are going on or, or certain issues is all comes down to price regulation, but price regulation certainly helps. And certainly politically, it helps keep austerity back for at least a certain extent. And so, you know, I do think we need other components to deal with bottlenecks, but bottlenecks or not, I think price regulation is good politics and good political economy, good, good economics in this circumstance. Nathan, thank you so much for joining the show. It's a pleasure as always to have you. Pleasure to be here, as always. And if you'd like to follow Nathan's work, you can uh, subscribe to his newsletter, Notes on the Crises, at crisesnotes.com. Listeners, if you'd like to support the show and get access to our second weekly bonus episode, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pre-order Health Communism, or request it at your local library, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. And we'll catch you, patrons, in the patron feed on Monday. For everyone else, we'll see you next week. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.